Once upon a time, humans started telling stories. Where are these stories coming from, Larry? Anywhere, anywhere. It doesn't matter anywhere. Um, the newspaper. Pick a story, any story. How do the stories we tell shape who we are, both as individuals and as a species? Immigrants, protests, budget cuts, and literacy programs. Human spirit overcoming economic adversity sounds like Horatio Alger in the barrio. Put Jimmy Smits in it and you got a sexy stand to deliver. Humans are so fond of stories, novels, movies, mythology, gossip, radio shows. It's a wonder we have time to achieve anything useful. Is there an evolutionary advantage to storytelling? How about uh, mudslide kills 60 in slums of Chile? That's good. Triumph over tragedy sounds like a John Borman picture. You still have a happy ending on it, the script will write itself. Our guest is Jonathan Gottschall, author of The Storytelling Animal. The evolution of storytelling. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. And they live happily ever after. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Today's broadcast originates from the studios of KALW San Francisco. It's a continuation of conversations that started Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Stanford is where Ken and I are professors of philosophy. And today we're philosophizing with you about the evolution of storytelling. Evolution, huh? Are, are you telling me that storytelling was somehow involved in the evolution of the human species? That it's an adaptation? Something with a survival function like opposable thumbs? Or do you just mean that storytelling has changed as human culture and technology have developed? Well, I think both things are probably true, but let's start about thinking about the evolutionary function of uh, storytelling. It's a curious fact, don't you think? Humans from Every part of the globe, from every epoch in human history, tells stories. It's a universal human trait. And moreover, no other animal tells stories. Th those, that combination of fact, the universality and distinctiveness of it, suggests that we evolved into storytelling creatures and that we did so because there was some evolutionary point to our storytelling. Well, maybe it suggests it to you, but... Just because we're the kind of creatures that like to tell stories doesn't really mean that storytelling is adaptive. Uh, there's all kinds of traits we have, and the fact that we have any given trait, whether it's a tendency to tell stories or, or, or something quite different, like eating sugary foods, for example, that, that doesn't mean that that trait has or ever had any adaptive function. It, it, it could have no function. It could just be an evolutionary accident. Or it might even be maladaptive, like my sweet tooth. But, John, I'm going to admit, look, it's true, we consume far too much refined sugar. But, in fact, we did evolve into sugar-craving creatures. And we evolved into sugar-craving creatures for a reason. But way back in the Pleistocene, it was important to get as much sugar as we could. I mean, high-caloric foods were in scarce supply, and sweet foods gave us an injection of energy. Of course, nowadays, it's way too easy to find such foods, and often when we find them, they're, way, they're the wrong kind. So the sweet tooth that was once adaptive has become maladaptive in the current environment. I admit that. Well, you make a valid point. Even if a trait is maladaptive or non-adaptive now, it might have once had an adaptive function. 
Eating high hoes might have been great for our ancestors and given them an evolutionary edge, but, but now it just threatens me with diabetes. Which raises a kind of interesting possibility, I guess. It could be that story, our, the human habit of telling stories served our ancestors really well and gave them some evolutionary edge, but it's not. it doesn't follow from that that it has the same benefit for us in our modern technological society. Well, I still think the more likely possibility is it's just an evolutionary byproduct with no particular function at all. Oh, you're so skeptical, John. But let, let, let's just think at least about the possible evolutionary advantages of storytelling. I mean, here's, here's, one, here's one possibility. Human life has always been full of stress and strain. Maybe the, uh, the, the uh, capacity to tell stories evolved to give us a way to avoid our troubles and get lost in worlds of the imagination. How's that for uh, a hypothesis? Well, it's a hypothesis. Well, it's a story is what it is. It's a just-so story. It's one explanation, but you could come up with dozens of others, I bet. Well, there are other possibilities. I mean, think of, like, sexual selection. Maybe telling stories is a way to get and hold another person's attention. Think, think of birds that sing beautifully. They're better able to attract mates. It could be that good storytellers are better able to attract mates, you know, to get more uh, sex. Oh, come on, Ken. I love a good story as much as the next guy, but I'm not convinced that your evolutionary fantasies uh, have any credence at all. I'm sure you could come up with a number of other just-so stories if you thought about it longer. Well, How would we tell which function, if any, were the real reason why we evolved this trait? Does there have to be a single function? Could they all contribute? Or, as I think, is the fact that we love to tell stories just a happy accident? You know, I'm going to admit those are very good questions, and in the course of this show, we're going to have to deal with just those questions. You know, even if you managed to establish that there was a particular function storytelling once served our ancestors, it doesn't automatically follow that it still serves that function or that that's still the reason we tell stories here in the 21st century. You know, John, I admit you're right, but here's something I know. Whether it be on the plains of the Pleistocene or next to the water cooler, great storytellers all have something in common. They know when to exaggerate, and that can make it sometimes hard to distinguish fact from fiction. So, you know what we did? We sent a roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, to find out more about the science and art of confabulation she this report. Facts are stupid things. Stubborn things, I should say. One of Ronald Reagan's favorite stories was about a World War II pilot who ordered his crew to bail out of their crippled B-17 bomber. One of the men couldn't because he'd been injured. So according to Reagan, the pilot sacrificed himself and said the words, never mind, son, we'll write it down together. Reagan told the story before the Congressional Medal of Honor Society. He said the pilot was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. It's a good story, but there's no evidence that it's true. Reagan was probably conflating fact with a scene from the 1944 film, Wing and a Prayer. Mike, Mike, are you okay? It's my leg, sir. Can you move them? Uh-uh. We're burning back here. You'd better bail out, sir. I haven't got the altitude, Mike. We'll take this ride together. We know now, of course, that memory is not an accurate videotape recording, that each time memories are recalled, they're slightly altered. William Herstein is a professor at Elmhurst College and author of the book Brain Fiction. He studies the science of confabulation, or false memories. Herstein recalls one patient he met years ago named David, a young man who was seriously injured in a car accident. David lost his right arm in the crash and hit his head hard, but he was alive and otherwise okay. 
And his parents said, oh, by the way, he doesn't acknowledge that we're his parents. That caught Herstein's attention. David was insisting that his parents were imposters. When his parents went to see him in the hospital, um, just refused to acknowledge their identity. One of the odd peculiarities of David's case was that when his parents would call him on the telephone, he would admit their identity, so it was modality-specific. Visually, he would deny them, but um, auditorily, he would uh, acknowledge that they were who they were. Turns out David had injured his brain, the prefrontal cortex and the temporoparietal junction, the part that helps us understand the psychology of other people. He was suffering from a condition called Capgras syndrome. Typically, you'll get very fluid confabulations from these patients if you ask them, why on earth would someone pretend to be your father or mother? And like one of our patients said, well, I don't know, perhaps my father went away and hired this man to take care of me. In comparing brain scans of people who tell made-up stories and people who recall real memories, Herstein says different parts of the brain light up, so it's very clear whether a person is telling the truth. But exaggerating or telling little lies can eventually lead to real false memories. If you create vivid mental imagery, and then months or years later you recall that imagery, it's very easy to mistake that imagery for an actual experience. So studies have shown that people who are good imaginers and are able to create vivid mental imagery are more subject to this effect. But Herstein says confabulating isn't necessarily a bad thing. For example, people who judge their own weaknesses too accurately are more likely to suffer from depression. We need a little bit of confabulation just to get through life. We need a little bit of self-deception. We need to tell ourselves that we are basically good people, we're important people. Our projects matter, you know, as a, as a motivational thing. Otherwise, if we're just sort of bluntly realistic about everything, it's, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.